Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hey writers, we here at the Writer Experience Podcast want to thank all of our listeners and guests for helping us reach over 150 episodes. That's a lot of writing knowledge spread out over three years. And as a way of welcoming new listeners and helping our current listeners rediscover old favorites, we're going to start airing select episodes one week per month. We hope that these writer selects bring some new insight and inspiration to all of our fans and help us celebrate many more episodes to come. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is L.L. McKinney. L. is the author of the Nightmareverse books, an urban fantasy retelling of Alice in Wonderland, starring a black Alice, starting with the A Blade So Black trilogy, which is comprised of A Blade So Black, A Dream So Dark, and the upcoming A Crown So Cursed. She's also working on an upcoming graphic novel for DC, featuring Nubia, Wonder Woman's twin sister, and she's also an advocate for equality and inclusion in publishing and the creator of the hashtag WhatWSC Writers Here. L, that's a lot of stuff. How's it going? It's pretty good. And yeah, I'm a busy lady. Thank you so much for having <laughs> it me. It sounds like it. First question that I always ask is, where are you in the world? I think you're in Kansas. Is that true? Kind of. Kansas City, which straddles Kansas and Missouri. Um, I was born and raised in the KCK side in Wyandotte County, but I currently live on the Missouri side. So yeah. <laughs> the writers these days can just basically write anywhere and work online and work with your agent. How does your experience affected by where you are? It's, I want to say there's less hustle outside of like the usual, you know, like deadline drama. Um, it's pretty laid back. People like to say that Kansas City is sort of like big city atmosphere with country attitude. So you get the benefits of living in a city, but it's much more spread out. We're not like on top of each other. I mean, I love visiting New York, but my anxiety, the way that's set up, I can't stay there for more than a couple of weeks. But it, it's pretty neat. Like everything is done via email. There's a lot of local Kansas City writers like Adib Karam, who wrote Darius, The Great is Not Okay, and Natalie Parker, who wrote Seafire, the Seafire trilogy. So it's, I mean, for not being in New York, it's pretty sweet. Tell us about your origin story leading up to this point. How did you work your way up? So I actually started writing when I was a little kid, surprise, surprise. Uh, that's how a lot of authors get started, I think, is this love of storytelling that stems from childhood. But for me, I stopped writing as a freshman in high school because I had an English teacher who told my parents that writing is a distraction for Latrice and she should stop. Like, from my English teacher, right? Because um, what That's would crazy. happen is we would have assignments and I would finish them like 45 minutes ahead of time. We had really long periods. We only had like four in the entire day. So each one was like two hours long, just ridiculous. Wow. So. I would finish about 45 minutes ahead of everybody else. And so I would work on my own stuff. And I guess that pissed her off for some reason. I don't really know. <laughs> but she told my parents, you know, what she said. And my parents, who my sisters and I have had trouble from teachers and principals in the past trying to hold us back because 
smart black girls. That's the thing that happens. So my parents were like, you don't need this. This is one extra thing that she's going to, you know, it's just going to cause problems for you. So maybe don't do it in her class. They're very supportive, my parents. But it was just one of those keep your head down, you know, to you pass through situations. And so I didn't write again until college, which no shade to anybody who enjoys the Twilight books. But I was watching those movies. And come the second one, I was like, well, hell, if she can do it, I can do it. And that's how I got back into writing was the Twilight movies because those happened. And um, again, if you like them, great. I love movies that some people don't like, so it's fine. So this was maybe 12 years ago when I was like, I'm a right, you know, for real, like as a career, which you had been told in college, that's not a thing you can do. So I actually went to school to make video games. That was fun. Still kind of <laughs> is. So that's how I got started. My not necessarily villainous background or whatever, but I decided I was going to do this young adult urban fantasy thing because that's what I loved reading. I love reading urban fantasy and young adult is kind of what you grew up with. So I started writing, I think, if I remember correctly, A Blade So Black is the fifth book that I wrote, but the first one to be published. So I wrote four over the process of oh, wow. Alice becoming a thing. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, that's a lot of people running around in your head. So with Alice, it was... I had written four books prior to that, and all of my books were about white boys because I thought that's what you had to write in order to be published because that's all I ever read. Some of my favorite series, Harry Potter, Art of Fowl, Percy Jackson, these, I mean, you know, this was the examples that were prominent. And it wasn't until my sisters started having children, and I have little nieces and nephews who were falling in love with all the geeky things that I loved as a kid. So I was like, I, I will be damned. It, can I say that? Can I cuss? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I will be damned if they go through the same thing that I went through. Because I didn't know about the greats like Octavia Butler and Toni Morrison and, you know, Black authors who were doing the damn thing until college. That was never, I was never exposed to that as a child, at least not in school, you know. And when you're reading books, like, I think the one book I enjoyed reading was The Hobbit. And that was 10th grade, I think. Everything else was just a slog. And Sparknotes kind of saved my life and my grade because uh, I just couldn't get through it. So. I write Alice, but I couldn't have written Alice if I hadn't written those other books because you learn the rules of the craft or whatever. And so I query Alice and I get my second agent. I had a first agent for one of the other stories. Um, it didn't pan out. She stopped being an agent to go off and write books. She's doing very well. Wish her all the best. You know, we parted amicably. And so Alice landed me my second agent. And we went through two years of submissions with writing and rewriting and revise and resubmissions so people were like add more romance and i'm just like uh that's not what i do i just want to kill monsters so eventually it landed with imprint at macmillan and what i like about this story and that i tell people when they're like you know what's one bit of advice you could give to writers it's don't give up that is one of the biggest things you know Outside of all the systemic issues within publishing, the biggest things that separates published writers from unpublished writers is giving up. And when I first started writing, the agent who sold my book wasn't even an agent. She was, I think, a lawyer. Still is. I mean, uh, she's not, not a lawyer, but she... Anyway, I use words for a living. Um, <laughs> but she's in Boston, so telecommuting really worked a whole lot because she was able to communicate with New York and so forth. Not too, too far, but farther than Kansas City. And the editor who bought my book wasn't an editor until like six months before she bought my book. 
So the people who were in place for all of this to happen, which has subsequently led to everything else that has happened, like the thing with Nubia and some other stuff that I have in the work, wouldn't have been possible. But if I had stopped, you know, at any point, I stopped counting query rejections at 250. Oh, wow. They kept going many times after that. I didn't even count the submission rejections, but I don't think they got into the triple digits. They were high enough in the double digits, you know. And I think what helped me with that is all the years beforehand and the multiple books beforehand, I was able to just, you know, put it in the hands of the people where it needed to be, my agent, and then go about my business writing the next book. Because that's what you're supposed to do, right? You write the next thing because the first thing may not sell. And it didn't. So I wrote the next thing. And ta-da! That's how we (laughs) get to where I am today. Love it. So you've written, as you mentioned, not just one book, multiple books, actually working on multiple trilogies, which are all part of a universe called the Nightmare Verse. Real quick, I'm just going to read through a little write-up on it. And then I do have a question about it. So in L.L. McKinney's urban fantasy series, Reimagining Alice in Wonderland, an Atlanta teenager struggling with real-world issues also combats monstrous creatures in Wonderland with a combination of magic weapons and martial arts skills, and living such a complicated double life could cause Alice to lose her head, literally. And there's a quote, with memorable characters and page-turning thrills, A Blade So Black is the fantasy book I've been waiting for my whole life. Alice is black girl magic personified, and that's from the number one New York Times bestselling author, Angie Thomas. So my question to you is, we've got all these books that are all part of the universe. Did you have the universe in mind first? And can you clarify for us which trilogies have been written? Where are you at right now? And kind of summarize where all these books kind of fit into the greater universe. Sure, no problem. Um, I first conceived of Alice. I was watching Supernatural reruns. I've told this story a few times at conventions. <laughs> I was watching Supernatural reruns because that's what you do with your morning, right? You sit on your mom's couch and you watch TNT and there's the Winchesters. Uh, they were slaying their creepy version of vampires and somebody was making Buffy puns, right? Well, earlier, uh, Disney had announced, hey, we're going to do a live action remake of Alice in Wonderland. Well, my first reaction to that news was nobody asked for this. And then that goes on to be not one of my favorite movies, but I enjoy it. Like I dress up as the Mad Hatter when I go to conventions, you know, so it's had an effect. So the first thing that happens when I'm thinking about, you know, okay, so what is this live action Alice in Wonderland going to be like? Does that mean Wonderland is real and not some nine-year-old girl's acid trip from the Victorian area? Like what is happening? And well, if Alice in Wonderland is real and the world is real, that means the Jabberwocky is probably real. Oh, that's going to cause, you might need to, okay, that's a monster. How do you deal with that? You know, the whole jaws that bite and claws that catch scenario. So I gave my Alice a sword. Actually, I gave her two daggers because for some reason that was cooler in my head. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so she has to fight. Maybe not the Jabberwocky, you know, maybe the Jabberwocky is like the end boss, the big boss fight. So what leads up to it? Smaller Jabberwockies, I guess. And so I wrote a fight scene and I liked it and I kept going. So Alice was conceived simultaneously with my version of Mad Hatter. And he sort of, I think he maybe came first uh, because I saw this sort of grunge, semi-gothic, green hair, black fingernails, you know, sort of this dude who runs this dive bar in Midtown Atlanta called the Looking Glass Pub. And he appears and Alice appears and 
there's this plan that he has for her to sit. It, it actually makes it into the first book. So she sits around being bait for these monsters. It works. She still thinks he's an ass for doing it, but they sort of riff off of each other. And so their dynamic was born. And I built the story sort of around this. I had planned for four books initially. My agent was like, oh, let's do a trilogy because those are all the rage now. And so I was like, okay, I can squeeze four books down into three. That's not a problem. And when I sold it or she sold it, we sold it. They bought two and an option, which, you know, on paper, technically isn't the third book, but they were like, yeah, if it does well enough, we'll, we'll give you the third book. So I'm like, okay. I still have to write book two as if there won't be a third book, but kind of as if they will, which is maddening. So we get the first trilogy, which deals with Alice and how she's debating actually leaving being a dreamwalker. No spoilers, because in the first part of the book, which is available on the excerpt everywhere, her father passes and she meets Addison. And when he's trying to kill the nightmare that's going after her because of her fear and sadness and so forth. And her way of dealing with grief and all the bad feelings is to beat the shit out of stuff. So that's what she does. And it's actually getting to a point where she's like, she's lying to her mom and she kind of can't keep up and the nightmares are coming more often. And she can't really explain how she got these bruises without, you know, worrying people. So, you know, she might end up dead in a ditch and her mom will never know because that's a possibility. So she's like, ah, I could give this up. But then her mentor ends up getting poisoned by somebody from the Wonderland canon who they thought was long gone, the Black Knight. And then shenanigans begin because now she has to deal with him and with curing Hatta and with everything that comes in between because, you know, story. Trying to be as spoiler-free as possible. And book two just deals with the fallout from what does or does not go right in book one. And book three will wrap up this aspect of the story. You know, everything just sort of blowing up in the past and then it calmed down and now it's blowing up again. And so that's the first trilogy, which I think is just being called the Ablade So Black trilogy, which is the first trilogy in the Nightmare Verse, which is overall... I didn't really conceive of the Nightmare Furs itself until partway through book two, when my editor is like, so you could technically write more about this world overall. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I could. So I ended up doing a, a short story for an anthology called Wonderland Anthology or an anthology by, I think it's Titan, who's my UK publisher. But here, I think it's Penguin Random House who's distributing it in the Americas. And in the anthology, I go back to Victorian age London, where this dreamwalker, her name is Baudelaire. Uh, she goes by Bodhi. She is a white plastic black girl from France. And she's fighting nightmares in Whitechapel, London, because there's a murderer on the loose and people think it's just, you know, this man. But Bodhi's like, nope, that, that's a nightmare is what that is. So... That's what the first book is now centered around because I got so much positive response from the uh, short story. So now the second, they want it to be standalone, this prequel, but I don't really do standalone. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so uh, that's how that's working. And people are asking, well, I want prequels that deal with Addison or I want prequels that deal with the war and what led up to it and the immediate aftermath. So there are, there's plenty that I could theoretically 
uh, go into. There's also, you know, with Wonderland literally being the world of dreams and the human subconscious, any number of creatures could turn up there and I could explore so many different, you know, scenarios. I'm hoping that should I get the chance to just dive in and go wherever I want, it doesn't become too cumbersome. But that's kind of where things are at the moment is Alice is sort of the jumping off point. She's our entry into Wonderland. And I'm clearly going to be writing another book about a dreamwalker. But I hope to maybe write a book that's potentially set directly in Wonderland, whether it's from the viewpoint of somebody from Wonderland or somebody going to Wonderland and then staying there for the whole book. Because in the first book, we go back and forth a little bit. In the second book, we spend more time in Wonderland, but we still you know, have what happens in the real world. So that is the ethos of the Nightmareverse. And I'm hoping I answered all parts of your question. You definitely did. Before we start and dive into process, we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. We've never interviewed an author about how to write multiple books in a trilogy. Are you down to kind of use maybe the first and second book to educate us on how those processes compare across those two books? Absolutely. So the first question I have for you is starting the book. Obviously, for the second book, you had to have started that while you were already working on the first. At what point did you start both of those? Tell us about how you kind of came up with those ideas. I know you kind of briefly already went into the inception of the ideas, but how did Mm -hmm. the inceptions of both compare? Well, the start of the first book is, as I said, questioning Disney's choices and the Winchesters. So that one just sort of blossomed. I don't really write with an outline or a plot in mind. I just follow the characters, which leads to a lot of cuts, but in my opinion, leads to a lot more uh, authentic, rich development because these are things that they would actually do given the circumstances, as opposed to this is what will work for the plot, which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with people who plot or with plotting. I'm trying to do that right now, but it's just not my way. So I'll write the entire story out. Once I have it in my head, I then go back and create an outline that I can then stick to. So writing the first book took about two years from blank page to finishing the first draft. And then over the process of about six years, I had critique partners. I've been in a critique group for almost 15 years now. We share each other's work and give each other feedback. One of us has an MFA in writing. The other is an English teacher. So, you know, we all just bounce off of each other. and We love telling the stories that we tell. Some of us are romance writers and thriller writers. So we're able to bring the tools from those genres that we specialize in to help bolster up each other's stories. Like I said, I'm not a big romance person. So my romance writer friend definitely helped make that what it is in the book. And so six years or so with at least five other people seeing the story and giving me feedback. Compare that to... Well, that's also in addition to the two years that it took to get the first draft together, because beforehand, I never showed anybody my first drafts. Now, all you do is show people your first drafts, at least for me. It took, where the first book took seven to eight years to go from blank page to at least shelf ready in the sense of my editor has it now, and then we're going to do more stuff to put it out on the shelf. It took seven to eight months for book two. So I had to cram my entire right. process into, I would say, 10% of the time frame that I was used to for this particular book. It helps that I already had a jumping point and an idea of where things were going, because I kind of had to sell the overall story arc and package to the publisher. 
it helps that I knew the characters well enough now that I could put them into any situation and I would know what would happen as opposed to that might work, but maybe something down the line changes how this would, you know, affect the entire plot line. I know the settings. I know the relationships. I know how they'll bounce off of one another. I know if I need A, B, and C to happen in order for the story to make sense and to flow and to have the pacing it needs. I need these three characters and not those three over there. So things that I discovered during those seven or eight years about my world and the characters made writing book two, while kind of frustratingly fast, a little bit easier when it comes to pulling the pieces together. Uh, Book three is currently being drafted. I started it in what's the month before August, July. So... It'll probably be around the same time period, seven to eight months, maybe a little bit faster, because it's expected to drop fall of next year. And it's just been this sort of taking some of what was established in the one that come before it and using it as a foundation, as opposed to trying to figure out the foundation. What's the shape? Is it stable? Is, you know, all those things that take when you're trying to build a house, you have to do a lot of stuff that comes before building the house. But if you arrive on the lot and the foundation's already there, well, you can get to, you know, the stuff that the people see, which is the house in and of itself. Nobody really sees the foundation. So that was a lot easier. But at the same time, like I said, the timeline made it a little bit stressful. I would not do that again. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, stuff would get in the way of my deadlines, like my apartment building catching on fire. Granted, my apartment was fine, but the building caught on fire. And it killed power to the entire building. And then they had to leave the power off in order to repair it. So we were without power for a week. Well, me, I draft on my desktop because I, I have two screens. So I have multiple windows opening for, you know, notes and for research and stuff. Well, it just so happens that night, when I say that night, I mean that morning, I stopped writing at like four in the morning. I had to be at work at seven. So I was like, I'll go get a couple hours sleep. And normally I put my most current draft on the cloud or I email it to myself just so I have backups of my backups. I did not this particular evening. So I couldn't advance my story at all for a whole week until the power came back on. And then when the power came back on, my computer wouldn't come back on because I guess it had fried the power supply. Thankfully, the rest of the computer was fine, but I had to send it in to the manufacturer who then troubleshot it and then sent it back, which added another three weeks So my entire story was delayed for about a month because somebody in the upper echelons of my apartment building was cooking meth or something. I don't know, but they set the building on fire and thus my, yeah, so that happened. (laughs) But so far, so good. No, what appears to be acts of God interfering at this point. But yeah, that, that has been my process is not really plotting, but then using the story itself once it's there as sort of this road guide. I don't necessarily follow the directions, but I at least know how many ways I can get from A to B. And then I pick what to me is the most exciting. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. 
To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. For those writers who are listening who maybe don't like plotting or using an outline, you don't use an outline, you said. What are your suggestions, your guidelines for those people who want to do that, but maybe they feel as though they might get lost along the way? What are some things that help you? You mentioned you wrote a little bit in your mind, but how do you get it to a point where when you're writing that, you know where you're going? Or are you just literally letting your mind take the story, whatever direction it goes? A combination of both. I have an idea of what I want to happen throughout the story, and then I have an idea of how I want it to end. But none of this, except for maybe a few scenes where I'm like, that is going to be the coolest thing ever, are concrete. And even then, after I write them, maybe they don't work so much. But I have an idea of how I want it to process. So I know at least, oh, well, Alice's father dies. I need to get her using her grief to fight monsters in Wonderland. All right, let's figure out how we get from that to that. And then once she's fighting monsters in Wonderland, okay, well, now I need her to question why she's doing this and be ready to give it up. Now I get from that to that. And then now her mentor has to get poisoned. How does that happen? Okay, the Black Knight shows up. And so in making him show up, I have to know, did somebody send him? Why is he here? How is he able to do what he's doing? How did he find out about all this? And in answering the questions of just placing him in the story, I get a lot of the foundation I was talking about. So there's nothing, this is how it works for me. And if you go through and you plot these things out and then say, I take the information that I then decide about for the Black Knight and I lay all of that out, well, then I build on top of that, which leads, you know, okay, so we don't see it in the book, but it helps outline the storyline canonically what's going on. So while this is happening in Alice's life, this is happening over here, the two coincide and then this happens. So that's kind of how I don't plot, but do plot. The most plotting I'll do is I'll maybe write out a plot line for five chapters and then I write to catch up and then I write another five chapters and then I write to catch up 
So for anybody who wants to, you know, write five chapters and they're like, okay, and then they do the next five chapters without, you know, actually drafting, that's one way to do it. Um, Another way I've heard and I'm kind of using for book three is those scenes that I was talking about where I know I want this to happen. I try and put those in chronological order, just lay them out. And then I go through and work out, you know, the between parts as opposed to just letting it come as it may, because waiting for the news to strike is not how you hit a deadline. So I'll just build off of what I want to have happen in the book. That's probably not traditionally how plots, lines, or outlines work. I'm not entirely sure, because again, as I'm not a plotter, but I, ha- I do work with plotters. It has been like to get the Nubia graphic novel, I had to write an outline. Uh, that was kind of easier because I had a whole world to work with that I didn't have to make up. So, you know, that happened. So I was able to outline. Outlining other people's stuff is sometimes easier. I guess that might be the thing. Get somebody else to outline it for you. I don't know. My next question is in regards to themes. Obviously, in your version of the Alice in Wonderland story, you bring diversity to a story that traditionally isn't that diverse. Tell us about that theme. Were you thinking about that theme early on before you're even writing the story? And how does that influence the words you're actually typing in where you bring the story? I think the only influence that it brought was Alice is going to look like me. She's going to look like the people in my family. She's going to look like the people I go to school with, you know, my cousins, my friends. Alice is going to be black. She's going to be a black girl. And that shaped the story in a completely different way because there are things that she thought about and ways that she reacted that just wouldn't happen otherwise. I think it was maybe two or three years ago, there was a hashtag called YA with soul where a bunch of black authors and readers, we would talk about these epic stories like Twilight and Harry Potter and Percy Jackson, these epic YAs, how the main character being black would have changed a lot of that. One of the things that Alice deals with is her mom is not here for her shit. You cannot just come home at 2 a.m. and expect it to be fine. No, it's not fine. Now you're grounded and now this is happening. And now mom is without really meaning to an antagonist to the story because not telling her what's going on is not going to work. You can't have the secretness and the so forth and so on. Or how she interacts with her friends. Alice uh, will code switch in the book. She's, she'll talk with African-American vernacular English around her people that she's comfortable with, whether they are black, white, or whatever. If she's comfortable around you, it's going to come out. As opposed to when she's meeting a literal princess for the first time. You know, now it's, I'm going to speak the king's English because assimilation was programmed into me, you know, from birth. So there's just aspects to her character that are going to change. One of the big things that happens theme-wise is fear, which it just happened recently with uh, another woman who was killed in her own home after what just happened with Botham. And so when these things happen and people are turned into hashtags, it affects the entire community. Like, I'll go into work and me and the two other Black people that were there, there's this heaviness. But the rest of the world expects us to go along. You know, you didn't know that person. Why are you so upset? things like that. And so that has an effect in the book where there's a killing of a black girl by police officers. And it's not the focal point of the book, but it shapes a lot of what happened because Alice's mom is 
helicopter parenting because of the fear that goes through a neighborhood when this happens. You're scared your child is next. You're going to do whatever you can to stop it. I've seen it with my sisters and their sons and daughters. It's just a thing that happens and you can't shake it for like months at a time. And at the end of the day, the nightmares thrive on fear. And that sort of fear creates, you know, these challenges for Alice to have to overcome both in her personal life and she physically has to fight the monster or it's going to rip her face off. So fear becomes an actual thing that needs to be vanquished. And only people like Alice can vanquish it because we are the source of it. So those are things that I wanted to examine both how this sort of story that I grew up loving but never really loved me back would change voice-wise as well as narrative-wise if I was in the driver's seat and how that would affect the viewpoint for the rest of the world inside the story. So yes, world-ending stakes and whatnot, but also who's going to tell my mom if I end up dead in a ditch in Wonderland and now I'm another hashtag in the real world? So those are some of the themes that I play with a little bit, for lack of a better term, and that inform the story, but don't drive the story. Tell us about the process of working with an editor. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about the actual writing. What about going back and forth with an editor? What do those notes look like? What are things that writers should and should not do when they're working with an editor to kind of get the book closer to its final place? Well, I have been very blessed with the editors that I have had. I've had Rhoda Beleza. I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Every time I think I am, I'm not. But she acquired my book and she was incredible because I had watered down a lot of the aspects of Blackness and Black life while submitting because I was getting, you know, responses that I don't really connect to the character so forth and so on. I don't really feel, you know, this, what's happening in her life. It's not really affecting me, those sort of things. So I watered it down so that she was a little bit more what quote unquote is the mainstream. And my editor was like, however high you want to dial it back up, I'm, I'm here for it. Whatever it takes, I'm ready to, you know, let you go back through and then bring it back to me. We've got a couple of years. Let's get this right. Let's make this the way you want it to be. And that was amazing for her to, from the get-go, before I had even signed anything, she's like, whatever you want to do, I'm gay. Let's do it. She went to bat. I don't think she actually had a problem with it, but I'm fairly certain she was one of the driving forces with how my covers wound up. And my covers are spectacular. They have Alice, dark skin, natural hair, centerpiece on the cover, when for a long time we were sold that Black people being on the cover of a book wouldn't sell the book. And it was very important to me to have Alice front and center on the book because I didn't have that as a kid. So again, I wanted my nieces and nephews to have it. And she was with me with every step of the way. There was never any resistance with anything. She was amazing during the copy editing process because, again, I used a lot of AAVE or African-American vernacular English, which isn't grammatically correct or what say you. And the copy editor would just everywhere there are notes changing things so that they are right quote unquote and my editor so i wouldn't have to do it went through and studied all of that for me so i didn't have to worry about changing those back and rhoda is filipina so it was a woman of color who did all of this and um i'm very sad that she left after the first book but she went on to greater things i'm super happy for her and then i got wesley turner who is 
another black woman. And Wesley has done just as much for Alice as Rhoda did. She understood the voice. She would leave notes saying, we're leaving this because it makes sense for the character. It makes sense for what she's going through. You know, certain beats where people are like, why is this bothering her or what is happening? Wesley just got it. And I didn't have to expend emotional and mental energy trying to make my case. It was already made with my editor being another Black woman. So I have been extremely fortunate in who I've gotten to work with. I have, however, heard cautionary tales, as one does. So I would say some general strokes, because again, a relationship between an author and an editor is personal to each author and each editor. I'm sure Wesley and Rhoda are different with other writers than they are with me. One thing I would say is if ever you feel like you are being ignored or neglected or, you know, nobody's getting back to you in a timely manner, that's a red flag. Anytime there are red flags, I would recommend going through your agent because your agent is the bad cop to your good cop. Essentially, your agent is if they're a problem, they're the ones there to take any of the animosity for having to yell about something, whether it's yelling about, hey, my author hasn't gotten paid yet, or hey, my author hasn't gotten their letter yet, or hey, my author hasn't gotten this or that or whatever you're supposed to be happening but isn't or is happening and shouldn't be. Agent is the way to go about it. I know some authors who they feel that they have a great relationship with their editor, and I do. And it's enough that they could then take the problems that they have to their editor. And I feel that I could, but that is my agent's job. And my agent, for one, has multiple clients, so deals with multiple books, so can see from a high point patterns and things that I couldn't. My experience is with writing these three books. That is it. She has sold and agented (laughs) probably a hundred times that. So she's going to notice, hey, this isn't the norm or, hey, this isn't industry standard. Meanwhile, I'm over here like, oh, this is the first time it's happened for me. So I guess that's what it is. You know, so having somebody go to bat for you in that regard is not only something that you would do, you know, just logistically, but it helps you maintain the good part of the relationship with your editor. Because if your editor has a problem with whatever's happening or something, they can go to your agent and be like, hey, this is happening. What's up? And your agent can be like, so they're looking for this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, No big deal. Um, We can give it to them or we can do this or we can do that. How do you want to proceed? So your agent is a mediator. So everything goes between you and your agents when it comes to anything negative. In my opinion, that's the best way to handle it. I would also say that even though you have an agent and it should be somebody you trust and it should be somebody who you believe will go to bat for you no matter what, do Educate yourself on what the industry norms are. Ask other writers. Ask other agents if you're friends with other agents. Ask other people in the business. Conversation is how you learn. There are things that I didn't know was or wasn't the industry standard until I asked what I thought was a stupid question. Ask the stupid question. Nobody's going to tell you unless you ask. And nobody's going to think you're stupid for asking because you're new at this, right? I know it's hard not to feel like you're bothering your agent or editor when you email them. I felt that a lot in the very beginning. Now it's one of those things where after four separate emails, because every time I finish an email, I thought of something else I wanted to say or ask. 
I've now sent five emails and the fifth one is apologizing for all the emails. That's all I'm going to apologize for is that I didn't put this all together or wait patiently to put it all together in one streamlined message. But now you got five emails from me that you don't know which one to respond to. That's my bad. That's my fault. Sorry about that. I'll work on it. Not really, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying? Other than that, that's what they are there for again. um, So I will email now whenever I'm curious about something or wanting to know something or not sure about something. And I used to apologize at the end of those emails. At least I had got to the point of writing them, right? I apologize at the end of them for taking up their time or if this is their convenience or, you know, whatever. And each time my agent and editor would be like, no, that's what I'm here for. Don't apologize. You're fine. Such and such. So it was after being told that I'm fine, asking the question multiple times. I'm okay with just asking the question flat out via email or text message or horrible bastardization of the two via mail from my phone, which is always just like some deformed text message slash email. And I don't feel a way about it anymore. And so I'm going to say that it's fine for you to email your agent. It's fine. It's okay. It's okay. Do the thing. It's not bothering them. They actually signed up for it when they offered you representation. Same with your editor. They signed up for it when they bought your book. It's okay. Send the email. Send the email. Please ask. Because there's nothing worse than not having the information to make a decision and making the decision anyway, and it turning out to be a bad decision. So while that doesn't really go into do's and don'ts of dealing you know, with your editor, because again, it's a relationship, but it depends on how you are as a person, how they are as a person, and how you operate together. These are some basic flyover general things that can lead to more solidifying things once you get those answers. And even if you're an introvert, I'm highly introverted. I play the extrovert very well. Uh, try and surround yourself with other people in publishing, people who are both on your level, whatever level that may be, people who are above your level, however you view that, whether that's somebody who's a bestseller or somebody who has more books or whatever your definitive answer for is the level above you, whatever that is, reach out, you know, talk to people on that, but always understand that those people aren't there just to give to you. You, Hey, I want to make a friend in this business. And we have a lot of these other things in common. So I figure writing could be one of them as well. So, you know, it needs to happen organically. I'm friends with a lot of people in publishing and it's because we bonded over screaming about Sailor Moon for like a year. And then I was able to ask them questions about publishing and just find your support system. Cause this place being publishing is filled with many no's and the iceberg or two, but in a good way of yeses throughout. And it can be hard by yourself. Tell us about the short-term plan for after this next book is finished. And then tell us about the long-term plan of this universe in general. Obviously, there's huge potential here for movie adaptations. Tell us kind of, uh, you know, what's on the horizon for you both in the next year or so and then in the long game. Well, the next year, I would say, is finishing the trilogy and then starting either the first draft or maybe an outline. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, It changes with each book for the prequel that I have in mind with Bodhi and potentially a prequel with Hatta and the gang and all that leads up to that. The A Blade So Black trilogy has been optioned for a TV show by Lionsgate. I don't know what's going on with that. It happened uh, December of last year. 
I do know that things are happening, but it could just be emails only because I send emails to my agent who thus sends it to them. So there are emails, but it could be anything that they could decide tomorrow that they're going to tell me, hey, we've been doing this for however long. Don't say anything, but this is what's about to happen. You could say it on this date, which is kind of what happens in publishing. They're like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You can't say anything about it until we say something about it or until the official news goes out. But at least you know, right? So at this point, I know nothing because I sold those rights. They don't have to come to me for anything. Right. I feel that they will because of the good conversations that I had with the producers on the show. And it just, it feels like a, I made a good decision. And whether it happens immediately or later down the road, it's whatever. Um, I do know that my agent, a uh, second agent, I am on agent number three. I did change agents while all this was happening with book one. Um, we could talk about that in a minute. But the agent that sold Alice did send book two once it was finished to Lionsgate. So they now have the continuation of the story. I imagine the same will happen with book three. I plan on doing more intellectual property work, like what I'm doing with the DC graphic novel. That was a lot of fun. I find writing in other people's worlds using a mixture of their characters and characters that I create, because I have created characters for that graphic novel, is a lot of fun. It sort of exercises a part of my brain without pulling the whole thing into it, kind of like playing Dungeons and Dragons, which, you know is another thing that I do. Um, that's something that I imagine building off of as well is the Dungeons and Dragons season or episodes that I do with five, there's six of us, yeah, five other uh, young adult authors. It's called Spellcheck and it's Spellcheck D&D on Twitter. We are on part of a small podcast network now that heard what we were doing and was like, hey, this is kind of awesome. We want to, you know, get your episodes out there. So I'm excited to see where that goes because we are working on building an audience and mostly because it's fun and that's one of the best parts about storytelling is getting to tell the story and then getting to interact with people who enjoy the story so i would say that's what i imagine in the next five years um oh and i did also sell a middle grade to imprint my same editor which is uh this 13-year-old, 12, 13, round in there, a black girl who is a gamer. She plays an MMORPG, kind of like World of Warcraft, and she's amazing at it, but in the real world, life kind of sucks. And till she finds out that she's the reincarnated King Arthur, and she has to find her gamer knights in order to defeat Morgana, who is the superintendent of her school district, before Morgana enslaves the populace, starting with the kids. And she's able to do this with the help of her science teacher, who is actually Merlin. So that's kind of what's coming down the pipeline in the next four or five years, is the next two books in the Nightmareverse series, potentially more. I mean, that's not official. I'm kind of putting it out there. <laughs> I want to write more. The Nubia graphic novel and just shenanigans with Dungeons and Dragons. And then the middle grade, which... Again, was got as a standalone. We're going to see how that goes. I don't know if that's a thing that I'm capable of. I could surprise myself because I also said I wasn't that great at short stories, but now I'm part of multiple anthologies. So, I mean, once you try, it can only get better. You had mentioned briefly 
beginning of the episode that the advice you always give to aspiring writers is never to give up. Did you want to elaborate at all? Yes. Never give up, but understand that if you need to step away for a second, that is okay. Do not beat yourself up for it. Whether that second is an actual second, whether you have to walk away for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. You know, life happens and it doesn't really wait for us to decide, oh, I can pencil in this existential crisis and then we can do that over here because I've got nothing else going on. No, it's just going to do what it does, which is be lived, whether or not you're there for it, there for it as in I'm here for this, not literally there for it as in a life that got awkward. But anyway, being good to yourself about needing to step away if you need to about coming back later on. It doesn't matter how long between the last time you wrote and the next time you write, you're still a writer. Own that. Be okay with owning that. Understand that you are doing this and your path is valid no matter where you are on it, whether you are plotting out what will be your first novel or you're where any of us are at any point, your path is valid. And Find ways to take joy in the small things because, again, I said there's a lot of no. So one of the things that I would do was whenever somebody said something nice about my writing, and in the beginning it was, you know, emails from friends or text messages or whatever, I would write it down on little slips of paper and put it inside a jar. So whenever I was beating myself up about craft or, you know, anything, I could go pull stuff from that jar and be reminded of, you know, the good side of things. Take a moment to celebrate the small things. You completed it. Excellent. You did your revisions. Excellent. You're writing a query letter. Excellent. You're getting your first rejections. Excellent. All of this is to be celebrated because it means you are still going, which is the point. So don't get caught up in, oh, I don't have an agent yet, or oh, I don't have a book deal yet, or oh, I'm not on the New York Times bestseller, or oh, I'm not part of a multi-movie franchise because like I just did with that, the oh, I'm not just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So now you've this person who doesn't have a multi-movie franchise, but you've done all these other things. And for some reason, that doesn't feel like enough, which happens to all of us. I will admit that it happens to me. But so do take time to celebrate the small, quote unquote, small things As somebody who threw a literal masquerade ball for her book release when just going to the local indie that I have and having cookies and punch would have been perfectly fine. I'm extra. I bought wigs and shit. (laughs) Those wigs lit up like they had battery packs. It's fine. You know, find the way that you want to celebrate and do it. Just just do the thing. Love it. My last question. Harry, Mm -hmm. can you please hand me the envelope? I'm now opening the envelope. All right. The last question is, did you have fun today? I had a lot of fun. I talked a lot, which in my head for me, like I said, I'm a huge introvert. I'm like, should I be wrapping this up now? But no, (laughs) you brought me here to ask the questions so that I could talk a lot. So I had to talk myself down from that. So I had a great time. As did we. As did we. Did you want to do any final plugs on the upcoming books as well as your Twitter handle? Anything you want to shout out? Sure. You can pretty much find me all across social media by going to my website, which is llmckinney.com, just like it is on the bottom of the books. 
at the bottom of the website, you will have my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my YouTube. I have a YouTube. It's mostly videos from me playing Overwatch and Destiny and stuff. I'm mostly on Twitter, which is at L on words. L is spelled like the magazine, E-L-L-E. Again, that's at L on words, where I don't really talk about writing. Like I said, I scream about Sailor Moon (laughs) and about there's about to be another Lord of the Rings TV show, but we already have a pretty amazing trilogy. Why are you doing this to us with the reboots? Stuff like that. (laughs) And occasionally you'll see across all platforms, hashtag Sir Chester who is my cat, who's like living with a roommate, who has an attitude, he doesn't pay any of the bills, but I love him anyway. I'm surprised he didn't cause any problems while I was doing this. But yes, it is Sir Chester, which I think he has the longest cat name ever. It's Wait, Sir I know it. Boop Snoot Purrington Wigglebottom Flooferson the Third Esquire Baron O. Butterscotch yes. or hashtag Sir Chester for short. I did my research on this one. It was actually going to be a that bonus question. Him. You beat me to it. That is him. He is he is a lot and I love him. And he got his name because I wanted to name all of my cats, all of my cats, the cat I was going to adopt, all of those names. And I couldn't pick one. So my mom teasingly was like, well, just name them all of them. And so I did. Um, and my vet hates me because now whenever I get medicine, it has to be with this long tail <laughs> where they Love have to that. put his whole because it's in the system like that. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Elle. It's been a pleasure. We appreciate your insights, your time talking to us about reworking Alice in Wonderland. We're excited about what you've got going on. Please keep in touch. We hope to have you back on for the next book. Absolutely. I would love to. I love doing these. This is so much fun. Well, thank you again, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be able to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at WriterExp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.